0: thanks for sticking with us here at the Occasionalist. Matt Pagel back once again to talk about the best of the best sports villains. Uh, this one is definitely this one is definitely a lot of fun. Um, we're we're not going to give like a top list. i will have some honorable mentions here, but we're not going to get like a top list. To me, there is truly only one real hardcore villain. In I shouldn't say the only one. But in terms of the best of the best, this there is one that stands head and shoulders above everyone else. And before we get to that particular person, I do want to give some qualifiers here because I think when I was when I was really boiling this down, I really initially kind of wanted to find like a player um, that that you could point to as being a villain. But I, I just don't think I don't think that players I don't think that players can truly be completely villainous right like and, and i'll explain that why i think that when it comes to sports the only true villains come from the ownership level be it the actual team owner or you know maybe someone who's a longtime executive for one of the teams um you know for the same team or it could be multiple teams maybe just someone that uh, continuously changes roles but is always at that you know high executive position of like a vice president or something like that um i really think that the I really believe this and I think it's for a multitude of reasons. I think oftentimes, you know, the owners of sports teams, they are they are involved with the team way longer than any single player is. You know, um, you know, think about um you think about the run that um you think about the run that Tom Brady and the Patriots had and and Bill Belichick has had with the, you know, with the Patriots. Well, Bob Kraft has owned them a lot longer than either of them. You know, he his ownership predates them. Um, you know, he's he's been at the controls of the team since I wanna say like ninety two or ninety three. So, you know, Bob Kraft has owned the Patriots for thirty years. And in some cases, some of these teams have been owned by the same family forever. Uh the Roonies have owned the Pat or they're owned the uh the Steelers, excuse me, for I, I, gosh I don't, 70 80 years possibly longer um the maras have owned the new york giants for um uh, literally i think they've always owned the new york giants um so you know in terms of ownership a lot of the they're like singular names or singular families or singular people that stand you know as the you know as the consistent figure in in the team's success or the team's lack of success for sometimes for decades. And in case you are wondering, by the way, I I mentioned the the Steelers and and the New York Giants. That is where Rooney Mara got her name from. Uh, She's the, the Kate Mara and Rooney Mara are, um, are like the grandkids of the Rooney's and the Mara's. The, the, the the two of the, two of the, two of the old school power families in the NFL. Um, Those, they are like the granddaughters of that, of those families. Um, I can't remember what Rooney Mara's actual first name is, but like, it's, It's, you know, whatever Rooney Mara um, and Kate Mara obviously opted just to go with, uh, you know, Mara as the last name. But anyway, neither here nor there. Owners. Ownership. Owners are, like I said, owners are in control. You know, they're in control of the teams for long periods of time. Um, So they, you know, are are just, again, they're open to more criticism because they're the ones who are with one team for an extended period of time. There aren't too many quarterbacks that are with, you know, with a football team for 30 years. In fact, there are no quarterbacks who have been with the football team for 30 years. So um, I think that's that's a big thing right there. That's a really important thing is that they are a constant. Mega wealthy people are also pretty easy to dislike. I mean, it's just simple fact there. Rich, 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 rich people, and these are, especially nowadays, maybe not so much, you know, you go back 50, 60 years, even 30, 40 years ago, um, you didn't have to be as wealthy as you have to be now to buy an NFL team or a basketball team or even a hockey team, but the nowadays you know the people who are the people who have the capital to buy, uh, like for example the Washington Commanders. I mean that's a, a team that isn't worth it, but whatever is apparently worth you know six billion dollars. There aren't many people on the planet that have six billion dollars to spend to just give away. To, be, to become the ownership, to become uh, owners of, uh, of, of a football team. Um, and then obviously when you get to more like to international sports, you know, international soccer, the, the prices go up f- just from there. Um, so we are talking the 1% of the 1%. Um, and those mega wealthy people are very easy to dislike. And then I think for the most part, this is every organization, but I really think this is very true for us, for every sports organization. Shit rolls uphill, big time, in a sports organization. Whatever the players are doing on the field, whatever the coaching staff is calling for, whatever the, whatever the player personnel, scouting, GM, whatever they're doing, all of that eventually makes its way up to the ownership. And believe me, here in Cleveland, we talk about Jimmy Haslam's ownership all the time. Um, success or otherwise it is about it it's it all goes back to ownership style leadership style right um i think we like to have this we like to have this idea that the owners are hands off but they are not they are not hands off whatsoever not that they're necessarily making decisions on play calls and stuff like that or certain day to day or even you know or the minutia of what's what's happening on the field but You would be completely and totally wrong if you thought that Jimmy Haslam or Jerry Jones or um, I can't remember who, trying to remember who owns the Carolina Panthers. Uh, It's a mega wealthy person as well. Um, You would be fooling yourself if you thought that they didn't have a voice essentially in the players, you know, in, in the locker room, but also in the coach's office. You'd be fooling yourself if you thought that. Why on earth would you own a team if you didn't have say over a lot of stuff? And quite frankly, who is there to stop you if you're the owner of the team, right? But having said that, again, then eventually that shit rolls uphill because once you fire, once you release or trade players, once you fire coaches and uh, and scouts and, and the head of your player personnel and your vice president and your presidents, who's left, right? The owner is left. So all that shit rolls uphill in, in every sports organization. Um and I think the owner is like the one owner is the one sort of the owner is the one role in every single sport where you could be hated by both, by both opposing fans and your own fans. Um, you know, if, if you are hyper successful, like the, like the Patriots were for a very long time, I think a lot of people hated Bob craft um, in addition to Belichick and, and Brady and everyone else associated with the Patriots. They hated Bob Kraft. well, you know if the you know and and Bob's an older gentleman so i mean i don't know how much longer he i want to say he's like in his 80s now um so you know who who knows how much longer he has left on this earth but let's just say he has another 15 years or so of ownership of life and ownership left in the in the New England Patriots if the New England Patriots continue to struggle the way they've struggled and they go downhill from um you know the precipice of where they were from you know the the Really, a place we've never seen any—not really, not kind of like this. I mean, truly, a place we've never seen any NFL team go previously. If they really struggle for a prolonged period of time, those fans that you know, you know, took him and, and Belichick and Brady and and you know were were so um, you know were so on board with everything that they were doing. If, if they go through a decade or so of struggles, then those same fans will hate Bob craft. It's just the way it works. And again, this kind of goes back into the idea that the the owners are, all, are around for a very long time. You you know you when you when you own something for that long, or you're a figure a piece of something for that long, you're going to receive both the adulation and the disdain from uh, from a fan base, depending on on how the team is doing. It's just the way it is. So I think so. I, so I do think that those things kind of make the make the owner or, in some cases, the president or whatever, that high-level executive of the team, um, that really sort of sets them up to be the ultimate villains. All right, so you're, then you're probably asking yourself, why not a player or, you know, what what kind of excludes players from this? And I don't think it excludes them. I just think that they're not as easily targetable as complete and total villains. And I say that because even the most antagonistic player has fans. Draymond Green has fans. Dennis Rodman had fans. Rudy Gobert has fans. There are fans of these type of players, not just singling out NBA players, I just think they're a little bit easier to, to kind of single out uh, in this case. You know, as, as people that you would, as sports figures that you would immediately think of as being antagonistic. Uh, those guys kind of come to mind. But they all have fans. Um, you know, obviously there's there's a devoted devoted fan base for Draymond Green, uh, over there in uh, in San Francisco and in, in Oakland. And I've always said this, that as annoying and detestable as I find Draymond Green, if he was on the Cavs and the Cavs were as successful as the Warriors were, believe me, I would be taking Draymond's back more often than not. Um, and I can appreciate, and this is something else that we're going to get into um, here in a second, I can appreciate what he does and the role that he plays on those Warriors teams. Um, there's, there's a reason why he does what he does. Um, and it's just sort of, yeah, like it, as much as I dislike him and other I'm sure other people have that feeling, there are a lot of people that like him. And so it really, it's hard to paint him as a complete villain when he is very, very well-received and well-loved by his teammates and also by... Um, you know, by pe- by his fan base, but even there are even people outside of his fan base that like that like Draymond Green. So again, even the most antagonistic player has fans. Um, I think that even 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 a lot of a lot of players, even if they are kind of flat out dirty players, they really don't last long enough to garner like a, an extended period of hate, or you know, or, or I guess generate that much bad will. Um, it's just, that's just the nature of sports. People get injured. They, they become ineffective. They, they get traded, um, you know, from, you know, they get traded away from maybe you're, you know, if it's a football player or something, they get traded to a team. You don't see that often or a basketball team. You don't see that often. And so they just, they're not, they're not in your consciousness or in the public consciousness long enough to really generate that much bad will and hate. Um, some players are, and some players are in the in the public eye for that long, but again, it kind of goes back to, you know, if they stick around long enough, then they must be good enough to you know play in the league. And if they're good enough to play in the league, whatever that league might be, then that kind of means that there's probably people that like him, um, and it's probably people from that you know from a particular fan base. So it just you know those two things kind of tied. I'm tying two things together there, but I, I just don't think that most players most players really stick around long enough in any league to to really generate um, any kind of villain status. And then the ones that are around for a long time must be very good. You know, if if, if a player puts in, puts in 12, 13, 14, 15 years into any professional league, they must be pretty damn good at what they're doing. Um, even, even if they are role players, they must be pretty damn good at that role. And if they are sort of good at that role, um, or they even even great, even if they've gone past good into into ter- into great territory or exceptional territory, like Tom Brady, Miguel Cabrera, Michael Jordan, these are three names for me that come up as as people that at one point in time I hated. Um, I hated Tom Brady and, and the success that the Patriots were having. I hated Miguel Cabrera because that motherfucker used to roll into Cleveland and just annihilate the the Indians slash Guardians for a long time. Michael Jordan just was the was the big brick wall for a lot of Eastern Conference teams uh in the in the nineties. But certainly for some really excellent Cavs teams that maybe could have that very possibly could have won a championship had Michael Jordan not existed. He was just the the brick wall keeping everyone else out, of uh, keeping everyone else out of the finals there for a while. So like I hated these players, but as time went on and Tom Brady just continued to roll up statistics and wins and championships and and, and records and all kinds of things, the hatred just sort of washes away, and it's just this appreciation for greatness. Miguel Cabrera, um, after years of watching him his stats against Cleveland are insane. Um, it, it's something like, I want to say he's played something like what amounts to like almost like a full season against Cleveland. And like, if he just played Cleveland every year for his career, he'd be the greatest player of all time. Something I, I I don't have his numbers like offhand here. I'm not going to look them up, but something like he's like a career 330 hitter against Cleveland with like 50 home runs and like 180 RBIs. It's insane. Um, but after a while, you begin to see you see that greatness day in and day out. And obviously, lucky enough to see him. I'm, unfortunately, he wasn't on Cleveland. He was in Detroit um, for all those years. And I've started in Florida, but was in Detroit for his best years. Um, you you when you see him frequently enough, and then as obviously as he gets older, and you know the skills kind of diminish, you really appreciate exactly what it was that you saw. Just like how goddamn great Miguel Cabrera actually was. And how he, you know, aged, aged appropriately. Um, he's clearly not on steroids because this guy had had a career arc that is, even though it was extended and it was very, very great, um, he had a career arc that clearly mimics that clearly shows and mimics the arcs of other longtime players who naturally, with age, get worse. Um, so you know, you do kind of appreciate someone like Miguel Cabrera as the years go on same with Michael Jordan um you know the relentlessness the way that he was able to sort of fend off an entire conference and how singularly you know how singularly amazing and clutch he was what he had to be um and you you know even though he, he broke hearts in Cleveland repeatedly I was at I was at his last game in Cleveland and of course of course he hits a goddamn game-winning. Uh, I don't think it was a three-pointer, but it was like, it was like towards the top of the key. Of course, he broke Cleveland's heart one more time when he was with the Wizards, and it was just sort of like expected. But now, like upon hindsight, you know it kind of sucked. But upon hindsight, it's just like, man, I got to, I got to see that one more time, and that's fucking incredible. So like these types of figures, um, you know, when they really do ascend to greatness, it is sort of, it is sort of. Uh, I think, I think I I still have some c- kind of like nugget or kernel of dislike, but I think you could only dislike them because they're so great. Like that that has, you know, a thin line between love and hate, right? Um, so I guess I'll also put it as like a thin line between dislike and appreciation. And that's where I think a lot of people come down with some of the all-time greats that maybe antagonized their, their particular team, um, you know, for years and years. At the very least, they can recognize that, things didn't turn out well for them but they got to see unparalleled greatness during the course of those uh during the course of those matchups all right then so who is my best villain my best sports villain of all time i have to go i have to go back to the i have to go back to i have to go back to baseball and i have to go back to the man who um defined a defined a, a whole to find a whole generation of of ownership in all of sports, but certainly in baseball, and that is George Steinbrenner. Cleveland's own George Steinbrenner. The late, the late George Steinbrenner died in, uh, uh, what, 2010? It's been a long time since he died, actually. Uh, but George Steinbrenner, owner of the Yankees, the polarizing owner of the Yankees. He actually initially tried... This guy was polarizing from the beginning. Um, he actually initially tried to buy the, the Indians, uh, but was... Flatly rejected by all of the uh, by the rest of the owners, um, and then obviously a few years later, that was like in 1971. Then obviously, like a few years later, would buy the Yankees in '73, maybe or maybe that was '70 to '73. I can't remember. Early '70s, let's just call it then. Uh, he gets turned down to buy the Indians, and then eventually buys the Yankees, and changes the trajectory of the Yankees, and also kind of um, changes the direct tra- tra- the changes the trajectory of baseball in general. I think. Um, for for the better and oftentimes for the worse. Um, But George Steinbrenner was... George Steinbrenner to me is just the ultimate, ultimate villain. And it starts off right away. And it starts off in the halls of power. Um, Maybe, you know, maybe older people, um, even people older than me uh, who are baseball fans probably remember this, but... Um, a lot of younger people probably don't, certainly people who are under 30, who really have never never experienced uh, the Yankees as being owned by George Steinbrenner, truly being owned by George Steinbrenner. But it started right off the bat. George Steinbrenner um, was convicted of illegal, cam- illegal campaign con- contributions to Richard Nixon's campaign, um, uh, was charged with uh, multiple counts of um, you know, making illegal donations. He would give bonuses to um, give bonuses to certain to certain uh, front office members and and members of the executives, um, uh, you know, executive board throughout the Yankees, and order them to, you know, as, as a way to skirt uh, campaign finance laws. Would order them to give those bonuses then to the the Nixon campaign, um, and he pleaded guilty and he was uh, ultimately suspended for. I don't know something like a, not like a full season, basically uh, from baseball. So his ownership started right off the bat with um, with some nefarious stuff, uh, you know, with uh, with with those in in the halls of power. Probably the most notable thing that one of all, <laughs> there's a lot of notable things, but one of the most notable things, and probably the most notable, um, is the quick trigger finger that Steinbrenner had with his managers, right? And his First twenty-three seasons, George Steinbrenner had twenty managers. So you do the math on that one about how long a manager lasts uh, under George Steinbrenner. Um, It's Billy Martin is obviously the most famous of these. um, Most famous of the Bronx Zoo period when uh, he was hiring and firing everybody. I I want to. I think he hired and fired Billy Martin like seven or eight times. He he hired he hired and fired managers. He fired managers one season only to bring them back on an interim basis the next season. Uh, obviously, it wouldn't be until um, it, he would have no stability until uh, years later when he hired Joe Torrey. And uh, obviously, they went on a great run. Um, you know, the late the late, uh, the late um, 90s Yankees were something else. Um, so it, it took him a while to, to get that footing um, before, you know, it took a while to find Joe Torre before he finally decided not to hire and fire everybody. More nefariously and really in one of the worst things that – one of the worst things that – easily one of the worst things that Steinbrenner ever did um, was after signing Dave Winfield to a 10-year contract, which – and this sounds so quaint now. A 10-year, $33 million contract sounds hilarious, Um, but still was a lot of money at that point in time. But signed Dave Winfield to a 10-year contract and basically spent all 10 years trying to slander and defame Dave Winfield, um, tried to get out of paying him certain – uh, certain bonuses and guarantees on his contract. Uh, literally the entire time, he hired a um, I can't remember if it was like a bookie or or something. You know, someone who was kind of someone who was kind of mobbed up or at least associated with the mob. I think his name was Howard Spira, Um Hired this guy to follow Dave Winfield and just find dirt on him for for a long time, for an extended period of time. He hired uh, he hired this guy to Spira to to just find something that he could use to defame. Dave Winfield, and eventually this, um, you know, once all this came to light um, and there was lawsuits and other things, um, originally it was Steinbrenner was banned for life from baseball. Um, I can't remember who banned him, Bowie Kuhn. I don't know. It wasn't Bowie Kuhn. I can't remember who, well, it had to have been, this was the early nineties. Maybe it was Bowie Kuhn. It doesn't really matter, but he was suspended. No, Faye Vincent, Faye Vincent, um, suspended for life from baseball. Eventually, uh, he was allowed to come back for the 1993 season this was so he was out of baseball essentially for three years uh, because of this and it's not coincidental the all of the tumultuousness of the of the Yankees stabilizes when he's gone um you, Steinbrenner was a very like you know again firing having 20 managers in 23 seasons is very emblematic of him not you know him not letting anything you know stabilize, and you know there's there being no long term plan or picture with the Yankees at this point, and it isn't until it isn't until he's banned from baseball that the Yankees were able to do some signing and drafting and planning for a long term sort of stable product, which included drafting guys like uh, uh I don't know if you've ever heard of him before Derek Jeter uh was one of those draft picks, one of those guys, and if you may may have maybe you heard of that name. Uh, trading for uh, trading for Paul O'Neill, signing you know like that was that became the plan, right? Like it was how do we set ourselves up for long term success, and they were able to do that without George Steinbrenner, um, his meddling and in interference um, being in the way. Um, and and George Steinbrenner, the ultimate meddler, his, his phone from his office at Yankee Stadium was he had a direct line into the managers, uh, into the dugout to talk to the manager, whoever that would have been, Um, you know, be it Billy Martin, be it Bob Lemon, be it uh, Gene Michael. He was able to call down to the dugout and just basically tell him, hey, you're being a fucking asshole. Do this, do this. Um, And it wasn't until he was removed from the Yankees that the Yankees were able to, as an organization, put things together for a long-term run of success that they, you know, they haven't won a World Series since 2009, I believe. But nonetheless it took him being out of baseball for that for an extended period of time for the Yankees to then finally become a stable organization. Steinbrenner also routinely criticized players through the media, uh, be it through newspapers or obviously later through, you know, radio and TV, uh, certain things got leaked here and there. Um, he called, uh, he called Hideki Arabu a fat pussy toad. Um, and he, uh, at one point in time, he said over—I can't remember—I think it was on TV. He told—I uh, uh, can't remember what station it was—but told uh, everyone that uh, Dave Winfield lacked the will to win. He would say things like that about his own players, let alone opposing players. He thought it was a good way to motivate players. Clearly, it's not. But that was just—that was just the type of owner he was. He was not afraid to, not afraid to involve himself and and get you know show show players his ugly side. Um, in fact, he had such a, a notorious, ugly side. There's this, this is more of a an alleged kind of thing, but it, it's it been alleged by enough people that it feels like it's probably true or somewhat true that there was a, um, there was a utility closet that they used to call like the Steinbrenner closet where if if Steinbrenner was in a bad mood and someone happened to be in the hallway that like, you know, that led up to his office, you could duck into this utility closet to hide um from Steinbrenner if he was in one of his moods and again alleged but seemingly there's several several notable people who worked who worked for the Yankees that have stories about the Steinbrenner closet um so it sounds like it's possibly very true that and it wasn't like it was a fu- it wasn't really like a fully functioning utility closet it literally was just there so that people could duck into that hallway but again the veracity of it is it's probably it probably is somewhat true you know it it's truthiness is probably you know 70% true let's call it that and of course good villains as as we have as we have posited many times on this show good villains or good characters in in, in fictional media are almost always villains they're just more fun to make characters based around uh based a base character around a villainous character, a villainous persona so, of course, only this only a villain that this notorious could become a, a caricature caricature uh, of himself on Seinfeld. Um, the The George Steinbrenner on Seinfeld is one of the greatest is one of the greatest cameo characters or one of the greatest. I, I don't know really what you call him because it's not a cameo. Obviously, it's not actually George Steinbrenner. It's a it's Larry David is George Steinbrenner. But one of the greatest. Um, one of the greatest villain characters of all time is, is this version of George Steinbrenner that pops up on Seinfeld. Um, Some of the, some of the iconic moments come with, especially some of the iconic moments come, especially with, um, uh, with, uh, with George's dad um, questioning, you know, the, in times of like dire circumstances, questioning the, the moves that, um, that Steinbrenner made, whether it's, trading Jay Buner or signing a Rabu for $30 million or whatever he signed him for. Um, those, those kind of moments are, are classic, but also kind of painting him as this. I don't want to say like an oaf, but as someone who was just kind of like uh, the, the, the weird things that happen. not because he's like intentionally trying to, to be an asshole, but like weird things happen simply because he's just like kind of blissfully unaware of certain things. So, this this depiction of of steinbrenner on seinfeld one of the classic characters of all time one of the classic villain characters of all time um it's just but i but i don't think you could make i don't think you could do this type of caricature of a real person on a tv show with anyone other than george steinbrenner and have it still be funny as i said there's a couple of a couple of honorable mentions here but I, I, again i think i still think steinbrenner takes the cake Especially since he was, you know, one of our one of the first modern era owner villains. Uh, I'm sure if you go back far enough, you could like Charlie Comiskey, who owned the White Sox, was just a complete bastard. But everyone that owned sports teams way back then was kind of a complete bastard. But uh, one of our first modern villains, and um, I just again, I think in terms of setting the bar, he sets the bar pretty high for villains. Um, but some other honorable mentions: uh, former Clippers owner Donald Sterling, uh, a very notable, disgusting racist, uh, bigot, uh, sexist. Go ahead, do pick the pick however you want to describe Donald Sterling. Um, he was a real bastard as well. Um, Daniel Snyder is right up there um, in terms of you know just not being successful. All of the bizarre, the bizarre things that he involved himself with and did. Um, suing, suing bloggers for, um, I mean, literally suing bloggers who are making like $12 an hour, um, as, as when he first kind of, when he first took over, um, ownership of the, of the then, uh, uh, of the then Washington Redskins, uh, now commanders, um, like off the bat, getting off to a contentious relationship with the press, suing bloggers, uh, suing a, I can't remember what the name of the, of the daily or what the the weekly magazines called, uh, might be might, I I don't I don't remember I, I not gonna not gonna look it up right now. Um, nickel and diming, um, <clears throat> nickel and diming, season ticket holders, charging people in stadium for things that like are bizarre to charge people things are bizarre to charge people for. Um, all of the times they kind of fuck up. Whatever they do, kind of try to celebrate and do something good. Um, when Snyder tried to do something good, it was fucked up. The Sean Taylor statue, the, the Sean Taylor um, tributes were all screwed up. Um, and then I'm not even getting into the federal investigations of toxic workplace culture, the the sex, sexist and racist culture that permeated the walls in, in Washington um, from ownership all the way down to, you know, all the way down to the coaches, basically um, certain coaches, not all of them. Um, Dan Snyder ran an absolute ship of fools. Um, so he's up there too, as an honorable mention. Uh, and then, you know, I, I think you know personally. I think you could throw in a, uh, uh, you could throw in Jimmy Haslam um, for us. He's kind of a clown show, uh, but compared to compared to compared to Daniel Snyder, Donald Sterling, certainly compared to compared to George Steinbrenner, Haslam's kind of uh, Haslam's kind of a junior level uh, villain. Um, he's 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 more of a henchman. We'll call him that. But uh, George Steinbrenner, he really takes the cake here. Um, and I don't think, and just in just the way that just the way that every sport kind of functions now. It's it's just, I don't think you're ever going to see someone like that ever again. I think the closest we have to it now uh, is the Colts owner, Jim Ursay. But, uh, you know, the ownership is, the ownership, sports owners are a, an ex, like I said, they're all billionaires. And they're an extremely kind of tight-knit group. Um, you know, they are one of, you know, if it's NFL, they are one of 32. Uh, other sports, you know, one of 30. Uh, I think hockey is actually 31 now. But, you know, they are one of a small group. And when their group is doing... When something someone in their group is doing something they don't like, they tend to fix that um, in some way or the other. Every now and then you get, like, a, a, a Jim Irsay, Um But, you know, look at how quickly the league moved to sort of make sure that Daniel Snyder was no longer uh, involved with, uh, with the NFL. Um, you know, usually... Those kind of things, people being sexist, racist idiots, they usually can kind of survive that, but Daniel Snyder was enough of a nuisance that the they made sure that uh, he was separated from his team pretty quickly. Um, only, only by the way, and only rich people get rewarded for being assholes. Um, Daniel Snyder gets to pocket $6 billion for being an asshole and a bad sports owner, but you know, whatever. But the point being here, there would they're just the way these leagues work now. There would never be a wild card like George Steinbrenner. Never again. So George Steinbrenner really kind of broke the mold um, when, it, when it came to the the level of meddling villainous ownership. George Steinbrenner is a one of one. And that is why he is our number one all-time best of the best sports villains. And that's it. That does it for this entire week. We are done. We are wrapped up. Thanks for listening. Thanks for downloading. We will see you next time. Uh, we have one more episode next week. And we're going to be talking some, what are we talking? Oh, we're talking some sports uniforms, logos, memorabilia, that kind of stuff. Should be a pretty fun episode. So we will see you next time.